Hello and welcome to OperaCast, your one-stop shop for the latest opera news, reviews, interviews and general chit-chat. My name is David Ward and coming up this month, celebrated tea cakes, an even key change and to BP or not to BP? That is the question. We also have more comprehensible chat with our two exclusive interviewees this month, the National Opera Studio's Emily Gottlieb, and she was my favourite and probably yours, Cardiff Singer of the World Audience Prize winner, Katie Bray. I'm joined in the Chapel FM studio this month by the soprano Lorna James. Good afternoon, Lorna. Good afternoon, David. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. It's lovely to be back. And also making his pod debut is the director, Matthew Aberhart. Good afternoon, Matthew. Hi, good afternoon. Thank you for joining us. You've just uh, come off the back of a very exciting uh, project with Opera North, I believe. Yes, that's right. We've just um, been doing a project called Wonderland Restored, where um, Will Todd adapted his opera that he put on at Opera Holland Park. Um, and we did it with sort of about 200 school children. So for every performance, we had uh, lots of school ch- children join us. And we, uh, yeah, he sort of adapted it so they could sing a lot of the songs in that opera. And we had the orchestra of Opera North, or some of them. And we had some members of the chorus too. So yeah, I went to lots of different cities and it was sort of, you know, semi-staged, but really it's getting the children to sing together, getting them to sing with the chorus and with the orchestra um, and getting them to experience a bit of theatre as well. So yeah. Fantastic. And now you're having a well-earned rest. I am, definitely. <laughs> starting with this. <laughs> well, hopefully it's not too taxing for you today. Okay. We're going to start off with something that I know you both know well, and that is Opera North. They've just announced their new music director, who will be the conductor, Gary Walker. Now, it's been over two years since the last music director, Alexander Markovich, left, so they've taken their time in making this appointment. Uh, Gary will join the company from the start of the 2021 season. Uh, he's currently the chief conductor at the Stats Orchestra Rheinische Philharmonie in Koblenz. Um, he's worked with Opera North recently on, on Billy Budd and Gianni Skiki and will return to the company for the Greek Passion next season. Uh, they've also announced a new principal guest conductor, Anthony Hermos, who will be with the company with the Marriage of Figaro next season as well. So it's it's almost like they've planned it, isn't it? It almost <laughs> is. <laughs> now, Lorna, you've been a chorister with the company for a number of years now. Um, I mean, what difference will it make now having this this musical do- director in place? It's going to make a huge difference. Um, we have an amazing management team. Christine Chibnall, the head of planning, and Richard Mantle, the, the the main guy in charge. I was going to say CEO, but I think maybe he's the general director or something instead. Um, but the, the two of them have been coping amazingly. Um, but management groups work best in threes. And what we have definitely felt as a company is we've really felt this kind of gap um, in the artistic leadership of the company. Um, I, I think it's going to be amazing to have that back in place with the three of them working working together to kind of thinking about where the company is going, what kind of artistic direction it wants to take. Uh, it's going to make a big, big difference. And, and what, what can we expect from Gary? Have you been given any... Um behind the scenes kind of look as to, as to what he might kind of bring bring to the role or are you as uh... no not I mean not particularly um, I'm, I'm finding it out with everybody else but um, Gary conducted a, a, an opera I was in at college so I've always had a soft spot for Gary when he kind of turned back up at Opera North I was like oh yes you know because I really enjoyed working with him uh, getting on for 10 years ago ha um, but he worked with the boys on Billy Budd and they all yeah. adored him um, and obviously Skeeky is a much smaller cast so the majority of the ladies of the chorus actually haven't had a chance to work with him yet but uh, he's from what I hear from uh, my colleagues in the chorus the, my gents colleagues in the chorus he's absolutely amazing he did our Christmas concert in Dewsbury last year and um, he's incredibly down to earth uh, and I think that is what this company needs he's got that Opera North vibe 
about mm-hmm. him. And so I'm really, really, really pleased. Fantastic. And I say, kind of great to finally have someone back at the helm after great, yes. a couple of years. And I know Richard Farns was there for a long time, but obviously Alexander was only there for, I think, less than a year in the end. So yeah. it's hopefully to have someone for the long term. Exactly. Um, so always big news when there's new artistic leadership at a company. So all the very best to, to Gary when he joins us here in Leeds in uh, just over a year's time. Moving on to some of the new seasons coming up this year and next. British Youth Opera in September. Um, they've got two operas on, La Cenerentola by Rossini and uh, also Scoring a Century, music by David Blake and libretto by Keith Warner, who also directs. Uh, this is a piece completely new to me. It was premiered in Birmingham in 2010, conducted by Lionel Friend, who also happens to be the music director of British Youth Opera. So I think we can see a nice <laughs> circle um, <laughs> make, making its way uh, around there. So two very different pieces. I mean, Lorna, you already mentioned, you know, kind of working with Gary when you were in, in college. As, as kind of a young singer, what what are you kind of hoping to get out of these sort of performances? Gosh, there's just it's just about experience. It's about clocking up the hours. It's about getting used to working with conductors and directors and assistant conductors and assistant directors. The the rehearsal room for an opera is an incredibly busy space. Um, and as a singer, navigating your way through that can be incredibly daunting at first. So uh, I, with all of these things, um, companies like um, BYO do this amazingly, just really supporting singers every step of the way um, and having artistic teams which always have that in mind. Uh, they always have the development and support of the singers in mind. I think um, I think they, what they offer is really amazing because I always really feel for singers. I think being a singer is very hard. You know, you have music rehearsals where one thing happens and you go into production and then you have this very weird thing where you get to a sort of a studio run then it's the sits pro where music comes back to be a focus and then it's stage and pianos and then it's stage and orchestras and then you sort of have to open and it all has to kind of come together so I think anything which gives a singer an experience of that whole journey mm. I think is is really remarkable because you might not be getting that when you're training but but you probably would be getting that when you're actually on a production and you're you know and you're learning about the different roles it's not just about what you do and your skills, but it's about working with stage management or working with an assistant director, whatever mm-hmm. it might be. So I think it's you know so valuable in, in a way for people to have that sort of opportunity. And also for creative teams, because they, they, you know, they have designers and costume people as well who are training, get to work on those productions. So for them, again, it's sort of gold dust, really. Yeah, it's yeah. a great training ground for, for, the, for the whole package, isn't mm. it? And as you say, it's such a different world between sort of like the, the main stage big six companies kind of process that takes months and months. And as you said, you've got uh, rehearsals, you've got stage and pianos, you've got costume, costume fittings and getting used to that sort of world, as opposed to, you know, kind of getting work with some of the smaller companies is is great but there you might have two weeks rehearsal period and you know kind of costumes are being fitted as you go yeah. on stage sort of thing so kind of to get used to that yeah how a big com- how a big machine operates yeah it's such a useful experience for Cause, everyone yeah because i think in a way that's one of the hardest things because in isolation you can be brilliant do what i mean but try doing that when it's kind of like you know 9 45 you're in stage and piano four your costume doesn't fit like that, anyway that is the challenge you know that's yeah. what defines kind of uh, what your performance might end up being like so yeah i think it's great it exposes you to all of that yeah yeah, and again, they've, they've picked a season with two very, very different pieces. I'm fascinated by this scoring a century. Me too. It looks fascinating. It does. It sounds. <laughs> it it sounds really fascinating. Um, I'm always slightly concerned when the librettist is the director and the original hmm. conductor brings it back for his own company. But sure. that's not to say that it's not brilliant. Exactly so. We will. We will wait and see.
Garsington have announced their 2020 season. Uh, for me, this looks a wonderful programme, uh, starting with uh, Verdi, a king for a day, one of the rare Verdi's, one of his comic operas. That's Christopher Alden, Tobias Ringborg, um, and what a double act of Richard Burkhart and Henry Waddington. I mean, that's a dream team. I mean, I wrote this down with a big star next to it. I mean, <laughs> who knows what Chris Alden will do with it? He's he's wacky at the best of times, so it's going to be amazing. Um, Tobias is really lovely to work with. We've had him at Opera North a couple of times, uh, and then yeah, Richard and Richard and Wadders. It's going to be great They're yeah gonna be great and i think falstaff is probably actually by far my my favorite verdi opera so to have another one of his comic operas yes um i think is is going to be fantastic uh we have the the mitridate the mozart um tim albury clement schultz uh rajalka uh with the boyds uh michael and douglas um taking on board that production and uh fidelio uh the john cox production uh with uh toby spence uh in the in the leading role um does anything in that program stick out for you matthew well i mean it all sounds fantastic i mean i think garsington is i it's sort of going from strength to strength i think in fact just generally it might just be i'm very aware of it this year more than any other year but summer opera festivals generally seem to be doing very very well like i've seen so much great press about you know um exciting productions that are happening and things that you'd really absolutely want to go and see you just can't quite manage it logistically um but yes yeah, so i think it's sort of a very exciting time really um and i'm going down to holland park this saturday uh, to see see a production there that i've you know just really want to go and see so um i think the times are passing where these places used to be about you know you go and have a really nice dinner to nice around it seems to be like you know the quality of the work is really on people's radar and that's not to say you don't still go down and have a nice dinner because i think you will do but i think it's part the... of the fun isn't yeah it? you know, exactly it's not what defines the fun but it's no. part of the experience exactly but i think you know a place like neville holt have got a new theater has been built and uh you know so there's lots of exciting things that are happening so really it's just part of a, a lot of a lot of very exciting things i think happening in these summer months you yeah, know yeah and this summer festival country house opera is something we haven't really talked much about but i think it's fascinating if there is kind of a boom area oh, in, absolutely in opera, yeah it's that and i think if we look at things like, you know, what's happening with English National Opera having to stay in a big theatre, a big programme, they're almost turning into more of a, not a summer company, but a seasonal company. This seems to be kind of the way that broadly things are, yes. are going. Um, we won't talk about it too much today, but um, that's a very nice segue into our uh, live opera cast recording we'll have on Monday the 26th of August at 2pm. It's going to be a special festivals-themed edition, uh, so we'll be dealing with um, all of these, looking at the different opera festivals, summer house operas, why they're so popular, why they are the boom sector in the UK opera scene. Uh, so do join us for that live recording. It's here at Chapel FM, free to attend. Bring your questions. Um, we'll have a little quiz as well. Uh, so that's Garsington 2020. Um, nearer in the, the future, opening next month, is the Tete Tete Festival, the London-based festival which celebrates new opera. I mean, every year they have a really uh, weird and wonderful programme helmed by uh, Bill Banks-Jones uh, down there at Tete-a-Tete. -tete. This year, a lot of the festivals taking uh, place at King's Place, uh, near King's Cross Station, but also in other venues across the city. Um, there's so much weird and wonderful stuff in that programme. Uh, the one that I picked out, Memories in Mind, um, it's inspired by the women from the Windrush uh, generation, written by Shirley Thompson and performed by the, the fantastic Nadine Benjamin. So the festival runs from the 24th of July to the 10th uh, of, of August. Yeah, just uh, another couple for me. Um, 
Michael Betteridge, who's a, a composer that I've worked with a couple of times, has a piece called Voiceless, um, which looks really fascinating. Uh, I think it's possibly still just within my summer holidays, so I might try and make it down um, to see that. Uh, dealing with um, trauma and the effect that has on the voice, both physically and also socially and politically. So a really fascinating piece. And uh, I know the music will be amazing. I think that's a rather. I've just scribbled that down now. Hmm. Um, and then Apollo's mission looks really fun. That. Yeah, that <laughs> because yeah, yeah. I am a complete astronomy nerd. So anything about that leaps straight out at me. And uh, I know a couple of the, the singers. They're young. They're up and coming. They are um, amazing talents. So I think that could be a really good one to watch as well. And I saw they're doing something called Madame Butterflop. Yes. Uh, yes. And, and I didn't realise, but on the uh, website, on the On Demand bit, you can watch videos of lots of previous Tete productions. So I watched a bit of... Toscatastrophe. T- yes, well done. Yeah. That one. <laughs> and it was very fun, actually. So, um, yes. I'll and Boemergency. That. That's, yeah. that's yeah. one, right. isn't it? I think, I think every year, Bill and the music director, Tim Burke, like to rip apart a, a famous Fabulous. opera. Fabulous. Yeah. Um, and one of the great things about Tete you just mentioned there, Matthew, is that they do have all of their shows for free online. And I don't know if I can divulge their stats, but it's worth, you know, it's worth saying that a lot of people have viewed those videos. It's a fantastic resource. Yeah. Um, to have and I think there's something wonderful about a festival as well that that celebrates kind of five minute pieces as being full works in their own right you know I think there's a tendency to think of a 10 minute piece as you know how are you going to develop it into an hour or two hours and actually going look you know this is my little five minute baby and it it goes from start to end and it's that's how I want it to be it's got a middle it's got an end and it's great thanks very much yes yeah yeah and kind of to bring all of those to, together in one place is, is fantastic. So uh, we'll put a link to the website in the show notes. Uh, do see if you can check out some of the festival this summer. Now, we had a full week of Cardiff Singer of the World podcasts, so we are not going to delve into that um, in detail. Do go back and listen uh, to them. Lorna was one of our wonderful guests for uh, Heat 4. Heat 4, yeah. In the competition. Do check out the, the episode, certainly the final episode, uh, where we go through the uh, the five finalists, which includes an interview with one of our favourites, Adriana Gonzalez, the Guatemalan soprano. She was fantastic on stage and she was fantastic to interview. So do uh, go back and listen to that. Um, in brief, the competition was won by the Ukrainian baritone Andre Kimach. Um, Chelsea Opera Group rather looking out. He is um, in their production of The Demon this week at the Queen Elizabeth Hall. Um, fortuitous. So, well done them. Well, also <laughs> great casting. They clearly saw it before yeah. the rest of the rest of the world did. Great. Um, so I'm, if it's not already sold out, I dare say you're gonna have to go pretty quickly to their website to get uh, tickets for that production. Um, the audience prize uh, was won by the English mezzo Katie Bray. I think people really loved the variety of the program. Such a great performer. Um, we certainly loved her on the podcast. Um, and it's been my pleasure this week to catch up with Katie uh, to find out what she thought about this year's competition and what we can expect from her next. So, Katie, welcome to OperaCast. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be talking to you. If possible, uh, can you sum up your Cardiff Singer experience this year? <laughs> um, I did say it yeah, was. it was um, totally surreal. I think is probably the the best word I can find to describe it. I had an amazing time, but it was also probably the most stressful, terrifying thing <laughs> I've ever done. It was really wonderful, and we were so well looked after. Um, but it really, it really felt like we were in some sort of mad bubble. And I, I'm. I'm very grateful now to be home and to be kind of coming back to to normality and putting my feet back on the ground. Yeah, because it is a very sort of artificial 
environment, isn't it? So much kind of pressure and attention for for that week. Very different to kind of doing a role on stage during a competition. Exactly. Yeah, it's really nothing like anything I've ever done before, and probably like nothing I'll ever do again. It's um, it's its own world, you know, Cardiff Singer. It really is an amazing thing, and people enjoy it so much and invest so much in it. Um, but it certainly felt like uh, not reality in, in a kind of wonderful way. And why was it then that you entered the competition, you know, aside from wanting to win? Did you have a kind of other things that you wanted to get out of it? Hmm. Yeah, well, to be honest, I didn't enter thinking I want to win. I mean, I suppose everybody enters sort of hoping they'll do well. But I I entered because it was my last chance to enter because I'm I'm now 32 and, and that's the, the cut off. Um, and also because my singing teachers and my, my agent just said, you know, why not have a go? I mean, you'll sort of regret it if you don't try. And, and I, I'd always been a bit reluctant to enter something that I knew would be potentially quite stressful. And also that I, I really thought um, I was very unlikely to get anywhere in it anyway. But then I realised, you know, I didn't really have anything to lose. And I, and I might have been disappointed with myself had I not given it a go. We saw your reaction to winning the audience prize. Um, oh, gosh, very... I'm so embarrassed. <laughs> <laughs> but it seemed very <laughs> genuine. Um, I mean, what, was that a great surprise? I mean, uh, we loved your your performances, you know, seemingly, obviously, a lot of the audience watching it really loved it as well. Totally. Yeah, I really, I mean, I feel a bit stupid now because, of course, I've watched it back and they, they've sat me on the end of the row with a camera up my nose and I should have figured out something was going, <laughs> something was going on. <laughs> <laughs> but I really, I honestly didn't. I had no idea. I, I, um, I was genuinely so surprised and so touched. And the audience prize to me means more than anything else could have done in this competition. And and I I feel totally over the moon and and amazed and uh, and I'm just so glad that that my performance touched people or or amused them or surprised them or something hopefully positive and memorable. Well, I think that was what's so brilliant about your performance and your repertoire choice that it did all of those things. And one of the great things about this year's competition and, and all competitions really is that everyone approaches it in different ways. You know, we had Sun Yun that, that just did the mad scene from Lucia and we had someone like yes. yourself that did such a varied programme. Um, kind of talk yes. us through that, that repertoire choice and why you decided to, to do those pieces. Sure. Well, I thought that this competition was an opportunity to show all different sides of, of me and who I am and what I do and also to try to show people that opera doesn't necessarily have to be all about the big um, as Jeff said after I sang not all about the big sort of juggernaut arias mm. and there is obviously space for that and that is fantastic but I'm not one of those singers and I wanted to show um, that there's there's a big range of, of possibilities and also that there's so much amazing repertoire I feel sometimes in competitions the repertoire can be quite narrow and mm. and I just really wanted to to show look there's some other incredible stuff that doesn't get done perhaps so much and and stuff that I believe really should should be given attention and also I really wanted to not kind of do anything that I wasn't really able to inhabit now um, right at this moment at this stage in my career and my development I, I thought it was good to show stuff that I feel I can I can do justice to today. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just kind of talk us through that that final song, which I think we all well we, we loved the whole program, but that was a great way to to end. Kind of yes. what was it about that kind of final piece that you wanted to um, kind of show us with that? Mm, sure. Yeah. Well, I I love Kurt Vile. I have 
since I was a child, I wrote my dissertation on on Vile and his life and his his crazy experience and um, and all of the different uh, singers he wrote for and 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 so I've I've been kind of obsessed with him for a long time and I wanted to pay tribute to his music and I also wanted to show that that the world of of opera and cabaret can be connected and they are being and lots of companies are doing are doing more sort of musical theater or cabaret and mixing mixing things together it isn't just about straightforward sort of traditional opera um and i think that this music really deserves attention and uh, i just wanted to show that it is possible to to sing cabaret but with class having had classical training you know i don't think they're mutually exclusive uh, genres. Now that's very interesting. We've got an interview coming up later with um, Emily Gottlieb from the National Opera Studio where she talks about one of the, the big things for young singers actually is being able to do, as you said, kind of the, the, the musical rep or the, the lighter rep and being able to yeah. show people that. Do you, mm. do you think that Cardiff Singer generally kind of presents one view of what an opera singer is or does? Hmm. It's a really good question. Um, there was a point during the competition when I, I felt a little disappointed maybe that I that some of the more unusual performers weren't being um, rewarded um, however I I now understand very much that I was wrong there and and I feel that the competition does show that there is room for everybody there is a place for everybody and all these different styles of music I I think perhaps um, the more traditional um, opera uh, arias are are possibly always going to to succeed more you know in this kind of epic epic singing kind of way is mm. very thrilling to listen to and to watch and I watched the final and I loved it I really really loved uh, loved all this kind of uh, amazing grand opera with a big O you know it's it's wonderful to see that and and hear it but I I feel like the competition and and any other sort of big public uh things like Cardiff Singer really have an opportunity and also a a responsibility to show people that it isn't only one style of opera one style of singing that that will succeed or that is um valuable there is so much value in all these different styles and all the different voices and the different people who bring who bring their own individual characters to the stage. Um, so I'm grateful that the competition allowed me to basically do what I wanted to do. I didn't have to fit into that mould. Um, I, I see that there is a chance that the public may see uh, the people that succeeded perhaps more in the competition are the ones who did the sort of big opera with an O arias. But I don't think that was... Um, a message to say that the other the other sorts of of of, of arias and singers are not just as valuable. Mm. And I think that was what's so wonderful about your heat, where we had the, the three mezzo voices, which yes, could, which could have been very dull, but actually because you were all so different, it was brilliant yes. to see how there can be such variety in one in one voice type. Totally, um, yeah. We had um, Adriana Gonzalez, one of the other competitors, on the pod last week, and she said, "Yes, yeah, I love her so much." <laughs> she was fantastic but she yes. said she had absolutely no idea what the judges were looking for did no. you or, or do you now have a better idea of what it was that that they kind of wanted having now seen the final um no not really I mean <laughs> uh, <laughs> well but it, because um there were five or six judges for you know for the competition and I'm sure they 
they all disagree. I mean, I really would be amazed if at every point of having to make a decision, everybody felt the same. Um, that's the you know the thing about art. It's like food. We don't all like the same things. And it would be very unlikely that all five judges would, would agree on every single competitor that went through to the final or that won a prize. Um, so I think I know what some of the judges look for, and I'm not sure about some of the other ones. Um, and, and again, it's just a matter of taste. I don't feel like any bad decisions were made. I think they everybody in the competition was amazing and the mm. people that got through to the final really just just blew my mind with what they could do and it was thrilling to be there so um i think ultimately what i hope the judges look for um or were looking for um is individuality and um uh, commitment you know to to the story to to the genre to the character, but also just to to commit to your voice, to what you can bring, um, just you, and to know that 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 is the best version of you. You know, because I I know when I'm watching other people perform, I'm I'm compelled by the people who are so completely themselves and mm. unashamedly themselves. Yeah, as you say, there's there's no point trying to pretend to be somebody else or a different singer or whatnot. You've got to use what you have to the best of you. Do yes. Exactly. You don't want to go out there and feel somehow like you're not being you. That was my my biggest sort of um, uh, worry was that I might go out there and get a bit spooked by the whole experience and, and suddenly feel like I couldn't be me. But I had some very good advice from a friend just before I went on stage for the semi-final, and and I it was basically just to to go out there and be yourself and don't worry about anything you know you have to go out there and feel proud of who you are and what you have to bring to this even if the judges really don't get it or don't like it that's okay but you'll feel worse if you kind of go out there and 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 you're not you yeah and I think that was one of the big reasons why you you won the audience prize it was very clear that you were presenting us with what you wanted to present us and you were yeah, hopefully having a wonderful time. <laughs> I was. I had a really wonderful time. Yeah, the the performance bit of the competition was was my favourite bit. You know, that really, that's where we all belong. You know, that's why why we do this job because we've we come alive on the stage and and the the chance that I that we all had to to choose our repertoire and and to just present ourselves as fully and as honestly as we could was was such a thrill and I had an absolute blast on the stage that night. I really did. I mean, going back to your comment that, you know, the diff diff different judges were probably looking for different things. I, I just wondered what your thoughts were at the end of your heat when David Poutney came on stage and, and sort of said, you know, I think we all know who's won this evening, you know, kind of to, to paraphrase. Um, and it was yes. a that went through. And just kind of yes. what your reaction to those comments were. I mean, for me, that seemed like, I don't know, it just it seemed like a very odd comment to make. Mm, I... I will admit um, I thought it was quite unkind. Um, yes, I did. I, yeah. I just think um, it's not very fair to make all the other performers feel as if they may as well not bother turning up. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I'm afraid he made a, a few comments that were slightly painful uh, along those lines. And yeah. yet... Um, Andre is just astonishing and when I heard him in the hall live for the final I you know I really it was it was exceptionally exciting and and such an amazing sound and so I totally get it if that's what turns you on then you're going to be really really turned on that night and and I, I I understand but I I think if you are 
at the helm of a competition like this, you you've got to be more tactful, perhaps with with some of the, of the words you choose to use. And I think you you make a good point actually about Andre that I think perhaps for us at home he you you can't quite get the full intensity of the voice if you're not there in the hall. So I think he seems. Mm. You know, we could all appreciate the talent, but actually through the screen, it was difficult to maybe quite get the full impact of his performance. Totally. Um, it's um, really, really um, a, a, a big, um, not problem, but a, an issue that what you hear when you're watching it on your TV is really different to what we hear in the hall. And I've I've just understood this myself, having now watched back some bits and bobs and, and obviously been in the, in the hall uh, two or three times as well. I'm listening to my friends and um it's uh it's a completely different experience the microphones are obviously sort of even us all out so everybody sounds really lovely um and also the the balance is very very good but in the hall it's a very different situation and some people do just have a lot more impact but i must make clear that that isn't only about volume it's it's yes. it's a, it's about commitment to the text and to the character it's about kind of um how much blade you have in your voice for want of a better term you know is it focused does it really carry because it wasn't always the big voices that had the impact but it was the ones that that really traveled to the back of the hall that that had amazing text. Um, Min Jae, I thought, was just amazing, just absolutely amazing. In the hall, his voice carried even better than some of the huge voices because he has so much ring in the sound and and it's so kind of vibrant and and he he cares so much for the words and there's so much detail and for me that carried right the way to the back of the hall and all the way up into the gods, much more than anybody else in the competition. And final question on, on the competition, was there yes. one, one singer or, or singers that particularly either impressed you or, or did something that, you know, brought, brought something to the competition you thought was particularly interesting? Yes, well, two, um, as I say, Min Jae, I thought was just astonishing. He is a, a, a totally amazing artist. He has everything going on. He's a lovely person. He, he puts so much hard work and detail into everything he does. And I think he is really classy and elegant as a performer. And I love that. He never pushed anything. He really brought us all in. Um, and that was amazing to watch. Um, and he is just a just a wonderful, wonderful human being. And the other person I'm just totally in love with is, is, is Adriana Gonzalez, who you spoke <laughs> to. And I'm sure you feel the same because she's just fantastic. She's so gutsy. She's full of fire. She's exceptionally sexy and just brilliant. And she really just she knows who she is and she's going to go out there and just give you 100 percent Adriana. And I love her for that. Yeah. Two very good choices. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, so, so finally, where are you heading next? Where can we see you next um, on the stage? Um, well, tomorrow I'm going to do a concert in Durham, um, uh, some of which will actually happen on a bridge in the middle of the city, which will be fun. Oh, We're doing some some 18th century street songs, French street songs. Um, so I will be finding my my inner Edith Piaf um, and <laughs> mixed with with uh, <laughs> somebody a lot older than that. Um, and uh and then I'm doing a concert in Oxford on Wednesday night, which is a, a world premiere of a piece based on the diary of Frida Kahlo. And it's just an astonishing piece of music by Paul Edlin and um, really very difficult thing for all of us to learn. But I'm really excited about it. She, she wrote this incredible diary of her mad, mad life, and he's turned it into a piece of music. We, we ask everyone on the podcast if there's one kind of dream role that you haven't yet performed but would love to at some point in the near or or distant future what is that role for you I think for now 
I would love to perform the role of Charlotte in Werther. I, I have done it once before in just with a piano in a very small space, which I loved. But I would just be over the moon to have the chance to do it on a bigger scale somewhere with an orchestra. I just think it's the most amazing piece. Wonderful. So uh, if any uh, casting directors, conductors <laughs> out there listening, um, I think we know how to get Katie's attention. Um, <laughs> Katie, thank you very much for, for joining us. It's very kind of you, I say. We, we loved your performance last week. We really look forward to seeing you on the, the stage in the future. Thanks so much. So nice to talk to you. So thank you very much to Katie for joining us and we look forward to seeing her on the UK stage very soon. Carla Rizzi has been named the new artistic director of Opera Rara, the company which champions lesser-known works, particularly of the Romantic period. Uh, it's currently helmed by Sir Mark Elder, who will retire in September 2019. Uh, Carlo is the former music director of Welsh National Opera, and we look forward to seeing what he brings to the company from the autumn onwards. Now, to quickly run through, whether you like them or not, they are upon us again, the Queen's Honours list. Um, as ever, there's a real uh, smattering of operatic greats in there. Um, it kind of seems as though you haven't really properly made it as an opera singer until you've been knighted or been given your damehood. I think we can rattle off. I've already mentioned Sir Mark Elder, um, <laughs> but the likes of uh, Bryn and Anne Murray and, and, and all, all, all people um, who've made it in the opera world um, tend to get on these lists. Uh, so congratulations to a few I've picked out, Sir David Poutney, uh, Jonathan Dove and Mark Padmore have been made CBEs, Robin Ticciati and OBE, um, CBEs for Mary and Sophie Bevan and the composer Anna Meredith. Lorna, one day would you would you like to see Dame Lorna? <laughs> Dame Lorna James. <laughs> at the palace. I just think I'm just going to take that anyway. I know, I just want to start calling myself Dame Lorna James. I don't yeah. know if you can, by deed, Paul, change your name to Dame or so. I have an, an unnamed colleague who I believe has bought herself some kind <laughs> of uh, a nobility. So we are, you know, we do refer to her as, I can't remember if it's Dame or Lady or something. Uh, I, so I think it's doable. I think that's, uh, that's definitely the shortcut that's worth investigating. Uh, so congratulations to all of those. I mean, as much as I was pleased to read the operatic honours, there were two others that I, I picked out. Um, so Archibald Tunnock, inventor of the Tunnock's tea cake, yes. has wow. finally been knighted for his services to the world. Um, <laughs> that took far too long. That took far too long. Um, and also, just because I love what uh, she's been awarded for, Catherine Mead has been uh, awarded an honour for her services to cheese making. Very good. Cheese making is very important. And again, if there's something we can all get behind. Ch chocolate and cheese. It's services to the world of cheese. Yes. <laughs> uh, so congratulations to both of them and to all of the operatic entrants in this year's honours list. Now, before we move on, don't forget to rate, review and subscribe to OperaCast on your favourite podcast platform. Thank you to all of you who have done so so far. We've got 100% five-star reviews on iTunes, including a couple of uh, lovely reviews left by listeners as well. Um, leaving a review really does help us to find new listeners to join in all of the monthly OperaFun here on OperaCast. Um, so please do head over to your favourite podcast platform, rate, review and subscribe. Now, moving back to Opera North, they've announced a new residency scheme for women conductors. Uh, this is a one-year scheme, which includes observing rehearsals, being mentored by the music staff at Opera North and guest conductors, and working with the education and outreach programmes. Uh, Sonia Ben Santa Maria will be the first uh, resident conductor. Um, she's currently conducting Ballo at Opera Holland Park. Something I think we can celebrating and champion absolutely i think it's incredibly positive um uh we mentioned richard mantle earlier um as uh, as somebody that's at the helm of this company he is incredibly forward thinking um you meet him and he's obviously you know he he 
is incredibly good at fundraising and generating kind of sponsorship for the company. And you look at him and he is a white middle class man. And but the amazing he is so forward thinking about things like this. And um, to me, this is just this is 100 percent good news. Um, just looking through Sonia's biog she has trained eno she went to the nos she trained at the academy she had links with the yetta parker scheme you know this this woman has has done amazing things already and the fact that i hadn't heard of her perhaps speaks to the reason why this residency exists absolutely and, it, and it's you know what we talked to sean edwards about a number of months ago and, and sophie gilpin on the on the last pod is that there are lots of great you know kind of female artists out there and actually that's it's just about trying to remove some of those barriers in place and actually mm-hmm. just trying to help kind of give people the step up because they're as talented as qualified as as kind of male counterparts absolutely but sometimes you just got to be proactive about these things yeah i think um i would love as all um uh, as all good feminists would say i would love to get to a point where we no longer go yay a female conductor like looking at cardiff singer and going there were two whole female conductors you know and i would love for that not to be something special um and i think this is a really good step towards that goal I think, you know, opera is just so collaborative. And the idea that that collaboration is normally happening with a, with a male conductor and not a is sort of mad, you know. The, it's, it, you know, surely that is, uh, there is some kind of impact on that. In terms of the kind of work that's being created, you know, that you're, you're not always having that voice coming in. So mm. I think it's, yeah, it's, it's really positive and I think very exciting. Uh, whether it was last year or the year before, I can't remember, but it was kind of the start of the big diversity push that we've all kind of been a part of. And I mm. went to a number of events and I remember distinctly in one of them at the end, you know, kind of someone said, you know, we've been talking about this, but actually, why do we want to do this? I think 99% of people were at these events because it's what they think they should do or the Arts Council have told them to. Um, But actually, I think you're quite right, Matthew. The whole reason why we want more people and kind of different people from different backgrounds involved is that if you want to create great art, you need to get different perspectives on that. You yeah. don't want one worldview creating everything that you go and see. Um, so whether it's um, men or women or it's people from different ethnicities or it's people of kind of different sexual orientations, you just need to get the variety of voices making the work, the different backgrounds which bring. And I think in opera as well, which is reliant on the core rep, yes. the different perspectives on that core rep um, will kind of keep it alive for the future. Yeah, I mean, I just opera really relies on all those people kind of working together. I mean, someone once said to me, Gary Walker, that he once said that... Um, opera works best when the conductor worries most about the, the, the staging and the drama and the director worries most about the music yes I think that's really that interesting so key. you know yeah. and so to have that kind of you know um yeah that collaboration between people I think is that is what opera is all about or it's what it should be about I think you know so good. Uh, so we will welcome uh, Sonia again to Leeds very soon. Uh, staying on the same uh, track, the Performing Rights Society have this week launched their Key Change Initiative, which is looking at getting companies on board to sign up to having a 50-50 male-female split. Uh, now, there are hundreds of organisations involved, including Opera North, the Royal Opera House and English National Opera, and each of them are choosing to sign up to this scheme in their own way. So Opera North, for example, have signed up to have a 50-50 male-female split in their ensembles, staff and the composers they commission. The Royal Opera House have arguably gone a step further in saying that they will have a 50-50 split um, in their creative teams on all future productions. Um, so again, it's something they've signed up to. We can uh, we can keep track of them. But I think that's, that's very interesting, Opera North looking at ensemble staff and composers. Now, I don't have the stats in front of me. I would say, certainly from my experience of working for a lot of arts organisations, that actually generally the staff tends to be quite female heavy, 
But certainly when you get up into some of the higher management positions, it suddenly starts to, to turn around. So again, we don't want to um, pick apart these commitments too much because it's great to kind of see, but there's one thing saying 50-50 staff, but there's looking at who are those members of staff. Similar in a way, perhaps, with the Royal Opera House creatives. You know, kind of great to look at your director, conductor, movement director, etc., etc. But it'll be interesting to see what the split is between directors, conductors. Um, yes, in I the think, future. Yeah, I think that's very true. I mean, I've been very lucky to assist lots of female directors, mm. you know, but I've only worked with one female conductor, you know. Uh, so, yeah, it, you're right. It's interesting to see where, which role that is actually happening in, you know, um, and seeing how that can be addressed. Yeah. yeah, and we mentioned on the pod last month there was just one female conductor at the Royal Opera House next season who is only direct, uh, conducting a, a couple of performances of, of, of one of the operas. Um, so they've got a lot of movement to make there. But now they've signed up to these sorts of things, we can, we can hold the... Uh, Ankles to the fire. And the... <laughs> but it's like going on a diet, right? And when you, st- you go on a diet, you can lose that first kind of half a stone stone really easily. If they've got a long way to go, they can make some progress really quickly. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it'll be interesting to see who else um, eventually signs up to this this commitment. And I think actually it's, it's a really good idea that different organisations can kind of make those different commitments. You know, we... Some changes take a, a long time and, you know, every organisation's different. Certainly, um, I don't know what the, the mix of the Opera North Orchestra is, but, you know, let's say if it was 70-30, we can't expect overnight for them to uh, get rid of 30 <laughs> orchestra members and, <laughs> and, and, and switch them over. So, uh, yeah, uh, kudos to those organisations that have uh, signed up and we, we look forward to kind of seeing some of these changes being made over the next few years. So I'm delighted to be joined today by Emily Gottlieb from the National Opera Studio. Uh, good afternoon, Emily. Hi there. Hello. Well, there's a number of things that we're um, really keen to talk to you about uh, today, but I wonder if you could just start off actually by just telling us what does the National Opera Studio do? That's a great question. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> the National Opera Studio is a training organisation for opera singers. Um, we, we train a very small number of singers and for repetiteurs who are um, opera pianists. Um, and who often go on to be coaches and uh, conductors and festival directors. Um, we operate at a kind of post-conservatoire level. Um, we're a sort of, I, I'd like to say we're like an elite sport club, elite but not elitist. Um, <laughs> we audition anyone who applies, and uh, we've got a completely open audition process. Um, but we do take a very small number of singers onto our programme, um, and, uh, and we have a nine-month program training them in all aspects of how to be an opera singer of of today and a repetiteur of today and is that taking singers from the uk or further afield from all over actually um our applicants come from around the world um we take obviously a good proportion of uk singers or uk born or trained um we're very keen to get a real eclectic diversity of um, artists on our program because we believe that that makes for a more interesting mix of artists um, and also interesting mix of perspectives um, when they're talking to each other and learning throughout the year Um, but no it it can change from year to year Um, we usually take sort of roughly three or four of each voice type though that can change and there's no quota Um, but we're sort of roughly half men half women on on the course for singers and repetitors can change year to year sometimes Sometimes we have all women um, pianists. Sometimes they're all men. Um, most of the time, next year, it's half and half. And you, you mentioned that this is you kind of see it as sort of a post-conservatoire level training. I mean, what, what is yeah. what is different or important about this edition? Because I know that a lot of singers are years and years at conservatoire. So, kind of, what is it that that National Opera Studio does that's kind of the next level? 
Yeah, it's a good question. Um, and indeed, you're right. I mean, a lot of people come to us having done an undergraduate degree, not a, not always in music. In fact, very often not. Um, their undergraduate degree can be in almost anything. Um, most people have done a postgraduate degree in singing. Um, I'm talking just about singers now. And um, e- even a lot of the singers who apply have also done an opera school at one of the UK conservatoires as well. So we're sort of like a young artist program that's attached not to one opera company, but to six and I think our kind of great um, specialism as it were is that we, we we work in partnership with the six main opera companies in the UK so that's um, ENO, the Royal Opera House, Glyndebourne, um, Opera North, Welsh National Opera and Scottish Opera um, and they sit on our audition panel um, the artistic directors and heads of the opera houses sit on our board so they're very very embedded and, and um, care about the artists on our program um, and what that means practically is that we have performance opportunities with those companies during their nine months um, we have regular audition opportunities with the companies and of course international and other companies uh, besides that um, so the companies UK companies take great um, care of our of our young artists um, but because we're not attached to any one opera house um, that means that we can offer them a kind of very very individual and focused program that's entirely sort of based around their needs and, and of course not every opera singer's needs is going to be different. So you mentioned there that you kind of represent the, the big six companies or they're kind of a you know, kind of part of the board of the, the organisation. Hmm. Kind of very broadly speaking, what are they looking for in a young artist? I mean, you know, if you're with Nottingham hmm. Opera Studio, you're obviously uh, very good. You're obviously ready for um, some of those kind of uh, solo roles with the big companies, yeah. but you may be not quite at the, you know, kind of the, 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 the headline role kind of stage. So, so what are they looking for in a young singer? Absolutely. Well, increasingly, I think what um, what opera companies are looking for is a... Um, and primarily, I, I really want to say a good colleague. I mean, that, that's a kind of one of the most important things. It might seem like that's not a sort of um, something you want to concentrate on. It's all about the voice. But really and truly, um, it is about how you act within an organization. Are you a collegiate colleague? Um, you know, of course, you need to have talent. But um, ultimately, the opera companies are looking for somebody they can employ within a company. Sometimes that might be for a, a role on tour, um, needing to get on with people in a very close proximity. Um, it might also mean that they are employed in contemporary work. Increasingly, opera companies are commissioning um, contemporary work at all different levels, whether that's a kind of, you know, two piano um, uh, job or a, and, and a couple of singers or really quite a large cast with full orchestra. So I think flexibility, um, acting ability is absolutely paramount. Um, of course, uh, good vocal te- solid good vocal technique um, and I think the thing that we sort of offer here that's perhaps most important to, to speak to that is we do a lot of work on resilience, which is sort of what I would call artistic, sort of personal, professional, mental resilience. Increasingly, that's becoming a massively important part mm. of our work. So we kind of balance the programme between the vocal needs of a young artist, the, the, the dramatic needs of a young artist, and what they might need for the profession itself. You know, some people may never have read a contract, for example, or know that the half-hour call is 35 minutes before a performance. These are small things, but um, when you get to being in a company at a very high level, if you don't know them, you're put at a disadvantage, and we don't really, we don't want that. We want them to go with all the skills that they can to make a, 
a career at the highest level. Mm. And looking at these kind of the the more modern needs of a of a young singer, is that kind of I was wondering if social media is something you kind of look at oh, that yeah. kind of public profile. Absolutely. There seem to be some singers that are doing kind of great things for themselves by being big kind of social media presences almost. You're absolutely right. I mean, kind of self-branding is massively mm. important. My head of communications will be delighted that you've asked me this question. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, he does a whole um, um, individual training on self-branding. Uh, we do work with them on their CVs. We take um, professional photographs of them, of course. We talk to them about image. Um, you're absolutely right. I mean, they are, if they're going to be in the public eye. And, you know, increasingly as well, if, you, if you're doing a contract at um, any opera house, you won't just be asked to sign a contract saying that you're you know you're you're doing this role for six performances they'll undoubtedly want you to do a a school's talk Mm. and a discussion with the director and you'll be asked if you could go to a fundraising event after performance three all these things mean that you're you're having to kind of sell yourself and bearing in mind that you know today's world is in many ways and not just in opera but a, a kind of crowded field um the the ways of standing out and, and, and promoting yourself is becoming ever, ever more important. So, yes, social media, what to say, what not to say um, uh, on social media and how to present yourself is, is crucial. Hmm. It was interesting what you said earlier about kind of casting directors and companies looking not only for people that can kind of do the main stage stuff, but so much, as you said, now is, you know, two pianos on tour or it's education yeah. projects, um, looking at the acting kind of side of things. Yeah. I, I was wondering if with so much opera now kind of being streamed, broadcast to cinemas on online, whether there's any kind of push to look at how singers can kind of communicate through screen as well as live, or is that still kind of a... Yeah. I mean, I think they don't do much of it. And I think, you know, that's that's usually because of, of time pressures at, um, at colleges and it's... Um it's really there's so much um, going on in a in a um, singer's sort of work and um, training life that it's it's hard to balance but um, indeed I I think we think here it's increasingly important to kind of train for those um, the the small screens and the medium sized screens as well Um, we've just actually this year done a project with um, the director Keith Warner and um, camera director Jonathan Haswell and uh, it was a project uh, doing Benjamin Britten scenes um, looking at scenes from the perspective of having a live audience and a camera audience. That's and really we interesting. filmed the scenes as if to film for a kind of live relay, but also as if to film for a film. And then they watched them back and actually we'll be putting them on our website shortly. So um, you'll be able to, anyone can go and have a look and, and see um, see what that's like. But you're, you're totally right. I mean, acting for camera is a completely different kettle of fish. And of course, quite often what singers will find if they're doing a live relay or a, or a or camera work is that they're also being asked to wear a radio mic or, or a microphone. And, and that's unusual for, for, for singers to deal with quite often. It's something and not really had to do before. Yeah, it's about about that feeling of having kind of something different, or as you say, with a camera, just actually knowing there's a camera looking at you is yeah. is quite a different kind of thing to kind of get your head around. Singers also, you know, it, it's it's a uh, it's very different from acting. Um, um, of course, it's acting as well, but your mouth can often make you know shapes that are unusual, and some singers are very um, concerned about that. You know, they want to be seen. Um, 
to their best advantage, of course. But often the voice, naturally, the mouth makes um, or the, the face can make um, movements that need to be that way because of the mm. sound but don't necessarily translate to a very pretty picture on the camera so all of those kind of clever tricks of how you know you might angle your head or your um, body or how to compensate in other areas I think are just the kind of things that really really clever directors and camera directors can can teach the young artists yeah. mm. I'm interested in the issues kind of uh, affecting the, the sector at the, at the moment particularly from the casting point of view and something that keeps coming up is this kind of seeming kind of over prevalence of, of female voices mm. um you know we've had a few of these things recently you know 80 percent of the singers in the by voice alone competition were were either sopranos or mezzos um mm. i know there were a couple of swedish conservatoires recently that, that accepted no male singers because they didn't feel mm. that anyone kind of came up to the standard and um yeah. i think i've seen the other day 60 percent more female applicants to to uk music conservatoires i mean do you find that this is an issue is this something that kind of gets reported back to you that there are just kind of to put it bluntly, too many female voices for operas which need predominantly male voice types. It, it is definitely um, an issue. I don't think anyone can sort of talk to you and say that it, it isn't. Um, I mean, we regularly, about over 50% of the people who apply for uh, to us, and we get sort of up to 300 applicants a year, are sopranos. Um, so, of course, that voice type gets very um, competitive. Um, and it certainly is a, a sort of a, an issue in the um, opera world. And, I've, of course, I've read all the um, very interesting information about um, the Swedish conservatoire problem, that specific problem about having no male applicants. We, we never have that problem. Um, we occasionally have difficulties uh, where we get very, very few bases apply. But, for mm. example, that's a slightly different um, issue because the bass voice can develop far, far later, um, at a far later stage than a, than a soprano voice, obviously, um, which means that it isn't very surprising that there aren't so many young basses around because their voices tend to mature later. Um, it, it, there, there are a couple of other sort of issues that I'd like to highlight, which is, mm. and, and this, it's, it's really about music education. I mean, it is true that we get more female applicants, um, and I'm sure that's true across the board. Um, it's a concern, I think, for all of us working at this level, and, and certainly for, at, at the opera company level in casting, um, that if our music education system is sort of consistently chipped away at um, in the early years, when people are most at their sort of um, ability to be exposed and, and um, delighted by um, the art form, the whatever art form that is, um, then we are likely to sort of keep getting um, an imbalance, I think. I mean, funnily enough, it's not actually just prevalent in our industry. Um, the Claw Leadership Programme, for example, mm. which is, operates at quite a similar level to us. It's a sort of um, very high-level, nine-month training programme for sort of arts leaders. Um, and uh, they have usually about 70% of their applicants are women. Um, and I don't know whether it's something to do with the fact that women or girls are usually um, the ones more keen on um, knowing that where they have training needs. Um, I mean, certainly that would be mm. true at our level. I'm not so sure that's true at sort of school to conservatoire level. Um, but I, I don't know how whether there's any actual sort of formal research into this because it would be quite interesting. I, I think it's always been a problem, to be quite honest with you. I'm not sure it's something that's increasing. 
um, over time. Kind of moving on to the perspective of the uh, the singer rather than the kind of the, the company, um, you've just launched this living opera series. Um, yeah. Tell us a little bit more about that and what it's kind of trying to um, kind of raise awareness of. Yeah, I think living the living opera series um, is something that we've we've got the lovely brand new website which we're really keen to kind of utilize as you know as people get much more digitally aware and um we're we're a kind of organization that's relatively well known in this country perhaps slightly less well known abroad and this is a very good opportunity for us to um extend our our reach in many ways but at the same time um singers and people within the performing arts rarely have kind of platforms to be able to give their experience of how it actually is in the um, world of, of opera um, in our case. And we want to be able to give them a platform to, to just give different experiences on um, what it is like perhaps to be an artist of difference or um, somebody who's gone through uh, an, an experience or a transitional phase. I mean, our first um, our first article is by C.N. Lester, and I think anyone can go on our website and, and read that now. Um, and our next article will be um, based around somebody who's who wants to talk about um, mental health, which I, I think is something that comes up in all areas of our lives now. Mm. Um, but it is certainly um, an area which is increasingly, as a training organisation, we need to be aware of and to and to be supportive of. So I think it's giving singers a platform, artists a platform where they can exp- express a, their experience of the industry. Often it's it's quite one way um, it, uh, from from the company's perspective. And you know, as you said, we we are support we support singers um, and 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 pianists and repetiteurs. So that's an important part of what we can offer them. The one other thing I think is that's important is to perhaps encourage people into the profession who might not have considered a, a career in opera. Um, you know, we, we so often find that the interesting people that come through the studio are, are often have had experience elsewhere. Um, certain, they could have had even entire careers before they have um, decided that, that they might try out um, whether they have the vocal talent to be a singer. Um, and if we can encourage a kind of diversity of, of applicant to the studio, and not just to the studio, but to, to anywhere else, to mm. conservatoires, to take an interest in the schools, then that's really, really important to us. Otherwise, you know, we, we don't just want to be a kind of um, homogenous voice for the industry it's it's vital that um we we have a diversity of of perspective you know um, of opinion and thought Hmm. i mean we've spoken a little bit about kind of uh, social media and um kind of uh, screenings and 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 whatnot um are there any other kind of issues that kind of singers are are coming to you with that you know perhaps might not have kind of come across you know five ten years ago i think often the, the 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 issues that we deal with are around not knowing sometimes people feel that the industry can be quite closed or that they don't really know the rules and actually that is that can be terrifying for a young singer who might be about to take on their first professional engagement you know what does a company manager do or why did i not get that audition and it's it's kind of alchemy anyway you really can't, it's an impossibility to um um to tell people why they did or did not get a certain audition because you know the, the voice and the an artist is is such a sort of um that it's it's very personal but you know ca- casting people have opinions and um it is it is an an alch- and sometimes the considerations in audition and nothing to do with 
um, or, or less to do with the singer than to do with the mix of, of people on the on the stage. Um, so I think perhaps sort of unraveling the um, industry sort of secrets, as it were. Um, a lot of people wonder how to get an agent and what what that is like and what a relationship between an agent and a singer um, should be. Um, so, and, and quite often it's about how can I sort of exist in this world that's you know peripatetic it can be freelance it can be lonely it can be incredibly rewarding and if we can give them the sort of support and confidence at this end that they need to be able to go into the profession understanding that it's not all going to be plain sailing but mm. that they uh, you know but they're prepared for it then that's the best we can do really yeah and i think it's so important as you said to kind of prepare them for the realities of the industry as well you know those as you said those kind of moments where you did a great audition and but you were too tall or you're too short or those sorts of things that you just can't control them but working out how you can kind of deal with those yes Um, um, yes exactly and there are certain things that I think you know you can address um there are things like um you know we we want to make sure that people have an idea of of what to wear and I don't mean that to the kind of um sort of last telling people what to wear of course not but you know encouraging people that if you're going for an afternoon audition you don't need to wear a ball gown or uh, you know talking to people about the way you walk into a room that can have such an impression on a on a panel or sometimes it's just about smiling and introducing yourself and not being afraid to to do that and so we you know to a certain extent you can um teach a few things about um audition I hate I hate the word audition technique actually, but you know about auditions you can kind of slightly try to demystify it. And ultimately, if we give them enough auditions throughout the program, then they'll have had enough experience that at least they feel confident in what they offer. And that's that's mm. the critical thing. Mm. If they have confidence in what they offer, then you can't really ask anymore because if Absolutely. you try and second guess a panel, you're kind of lost. You you've just got to be you've got to know that what you're presenting is speaks to you is true to you and is is truthful of what you can offer as an artist i think that's the main thing yeah i think that's that's brilliant advice i think from my perspective as a as a uh, running a company here in in leeds my biggest bugbear with uh, singers often is cvs the amount of appalling kind of cvs that are kind of unreadable or the amount of emails mm. i get that kind of have the wrong name or something in yeah. um it's all those kind of basic things that i do wonder if people are ever kind of taught you know um absolutely <laughs> i mean things like you know things like if you're going to be working with a really famous director do go and look them up you know go yeah. and look up what they've done because you you just never know whether a chance conversation in a coffee bar could with you knowing that the last production they did uh, or the next production they're doing is something you might be interested in or that you've done this role it can often lead to more work and i think the more we can kind of encourage artists to be their own to have sort of what i call agency over yes, their own yeah. careers and their own um, sort of destinies as it were then then the better um because it is you know, there's no question that any, I think any performing artist, it's it's a, it's a difficult, sometimes lonely um, profession. But if you can navigate it where the rewards can outweigh the sort of uh, the difficulties then and, and you're prepared for it, then it can be great. Absolutely. Now, finally, you're in a, a rather envious position. You kind of work with the, the best young singers as well as meeting regularly with the, the top companies in the in the UK. Are there any kind of uh, things that we should be looking out for, kind of, you know, kind of uh, 
issues or kind of exciting things happening in the industry over the next kind of few years that you can kind of uh, see emerging as, as things that we'll be we'll be talking about or kind of having to having to grapple with? Well, I think maybe um, I'd highlight a couple of things. Um, one is that I think increasingly the heads of opera companies, um, artistic directors of opera companies, are directors. Their background is in directing. That is a change um, from the past good many years where often artistic directors, I mean, obviously, certainly music directors were always um, musicians, um, but increasingly the people who are decision-making at comp- a company level care about um, not just your vocal performance, but your acting performance. Mm. And I think it is true to say that it is absolutely not to be avoided. You, If you are a singer and you have done no acting training, you need to get it because um, the, the acting is, I would say, half of the battle of, of, of being a singer, of a successful singer. It really does matter. And we audiences care much more. Um, you know, we're less sort of thrilled by um, a tenor who stands downstage centre and sings um, his art, no matter how beautiful, we want truth. Um, and we get that on the television all the time. We get films, you know, Netflix is in our living room. We want truthfulness. And, and unless you're um, a good actor, that truthfulness will kind of elude the casting people, but also the audience. Um, so so notice, I suppose for singers, you know, notice that, that increasingly artistic directors are directors and um and don't skimp on your on your acting training. Hmm. Um and then the other thing I, I think I would say is that increasingly um opera companies are commissioning new work and it's certainly the truth in this country. Um in fact there are more kind of smaller opera companies not just smaller opera companies, but entire, uh, I mean, you know, the Lindbury Theatre, for example, at the Royal Opera House is an entire new London venue that's going to be doing, that is doing a lot of contemporary work. Um, so I think you, if, if, you're a, if you're a singer and you don't do contemporary music or you don't like contemporary music, you're kind of cutting yourself off from really quite a lot of really good work opportunities if you, if you don't address contemporary music. Um, and I suppose... All, attached to that is that a lot of opera companies are now um, doing music theatre or even mm. musicals and um, it's the same sort of thing you know if you if you're an artist I think you need to be prepared for all shapes of the of the kind of new opera um, scene it isn't just we're not just a museum art form it's very much alive and um, I think performing artists um, need to be aware of that as much as as much as anyone else and it will of course reap great rewards if you are that flexible artist who can be cast in in many many different things um, so it's a it's a good it's a good idea well, thank you very much, Emily. That's been uh, really interesting to hear and I think kind of vital listening for any young singer out there. Um, so thank you very much for, for joining us. Um, all the best with uh, the next cohort of singers and re- repetiteurs. They're joining you in the autumn, are they? Thank you very much. And I, I'm sorry we didn't talk more about the repetiteurs because honestly, they're, they're some of the most, um, the, the journeys they go on are some of the most fascinating because um, they usually end up in um, in positions of, of, of power often. You know, they're, they're festival directors and chorus directors and heads of music. Um, our last audition panel, which consisted of 12 of the, of the um, artistic 
artistic and music directors of the opera companies. Um, half of them, that's six of them, were, were our alumni, so uh, alumni repetiteurs. So it just goes to show that, um, you know, repetiteur training can lead on to um to great things oh yeah absolutely we we tend to get kind of stuck on singers because they're the ones quite literally kind of front and center but (laughs) of course you know actually the role of the the repertoire not only you know what if they may you know kind of become music directors or whatnot but actually just repetitors in their own right are such a vital part of that whole kind of recruitment rehearsal process as as well um and i was uh, at the uh, your showcase at um the Salvation Army uh, a couple of weeks ago, a couple of months oh, ago great. now. Yeah, um, yeah. And again, obviously, the, the singers were very, very impressive, but kind of the work of the rep- repetiteurs as well. I mean, they, you know, we wouldn't, uh, we wouldn't be able They're to little do anything without them. <laughs> yeah, indeed. No, yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, the, you know, repetiteuring is, is a sort of, can be a, a, a really, really rewarding job on its own and can lead to other things. And I also would say there's very little um, training for it um, mm. in this country and abroad, actually. And so really reps, who people who want to do collaborative piano um we're, we're always really interested to hear from people because it's, it's such a different skill from solo piano playing um and and it can be an incredibly re- rewarding profession absolutely and i think not, not to overlook kind of how difficult it is as well as you said kind of there's something very different from playing the piano or being an accompanist to kind of being an orchestra in a yeah. piano which is what a, a rep is and being able to kind of coach singers and all of that yeah. side of things as well it's not it's just, just sort of someone that could play the piano can kind of do it. There is, as you said, kind of a whole wider range of skills needed in, yes. in that particular job. And let's not forget being a psychologist as well. <laughs> <laughs> Emily Gottlieb from the National Opera Studio. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much. Thank, Thank you. Now, we first mentioned this issue a couple of months ago. We said we'd return to it, and indeed we are. It's the issue of who sponsors the arts, and should we be picky about those people that we allow to sponsor and support our productions? Uh, This month, it's it's riled its head again with the uh, BP sponsorship of the Royal Opera House's Big Screens. There were Extinction Rebellion protests at the recent ballet Big Screen in Trafalgar Square, hundreds of people descending on the square and disrupting that performance. Uh, We've also got Royal Opera House opera big screens coming up over the next month, so it'll be interesting to see if there are any more protests at those. We've also had the news that Mark Rylance, the director and actor, has uh, quit the Royal Shakespeare Company this week over BP's sponsorship. Maureen Lippmann has already written a letter calling him jolly silly for doing so. Now, I say this is something that's just going to kind of keep coming back. Um, I'm going to start with you, Matthew. Is is this something that you would ever take a stand on? Do you kind of have a, a, a moral compass on this sort yeah, of thing? Or? I mean, it's it's such a it's a big issue, isn't it? I mean, it's incredibly complicated. I mean, one thing I thought about because you mentioned we will talk about this today, so I sort of did some googling, um, and I saw those amazing pictures of that protest. You know, in the, I think it was the Guardian. Mm. Um, and what's interesting about it is. It, what I then did is and I then thought, oh, I don't know too much about this. I should definitely go and read a bit more. So then I sort of Googled, you know, BP, climate change or something. Then I read an article on that and that led me to another article. Apparently Shell have done quite a lot of good things recently. So so they're sort of in, in the good books. Um, and then I realised, well, I'm not actually that aware about all this information. And, and I think the danger is, isn't it, that you sort of see headlines about things and you, you make very quick decisions about what's right and what's wrong. But what's really useful is actually having lots of information to kind of actually look at. So you, you're actually seeing what, what's happening. Um, so I guess if this hadn't have happened, maybe I wouldn't have gone on that Google search. You know, maybe I wouldn't have sort of... Um, found out the information that I did. So I totally, I think raising awareness is a good thing. And I think change does require a kind of 
you know, you have to do something to prompt that change. Um, but like I say, it's a very complex issue. But I, but it did make me think that actually, you know, maybe this is, you know, maybe this is okay. Maybe, you know, it's helped me go on a, a journey to discover something that otherwise I wouldn't have known anything about. So. Yeah, I mean, there, there, there are two issues there. One is that, I, you know, the, the idea of the protest is to make people stand up and listen and do like you did you're an excellent example of someone that has yes. responded to the process yes. the protest by actually going and doing doing your own research yeah but that, that's one side the other is actually if bp is sponsoring a big screen does that mean that you as a consumer don't go does that mean that you as an artist don't kind of want to be part of it and that's a much bigger question yeah it's it's very difficult i mean I, I i do think the idea that sort of big corporate companies that they sponsor the arts i mean that in itself is i think a good thing so removing the kind of the, the the climate change thing or you know just i think that is very that's positive i think um but it's the problem is obviously when bp do those events they've got their logos everywhere so so do you know what i mean it's not like they're kind of allowing those things to happen and sort of being charitable it is a sort of like we've got our name everywhere it's it's it does become it does um it does start to feel a bit like a kind of not a marketing campaign, but it's like well, we're you well, know, that, that's is. the whole yeah. purpose. Yeah, okay. Well, there know, we I mean, go. It, yeah. I mean, it'd be very rare to think of an example where a, a company has given money to something, whether it be artistic or even charitable, not wanting to get something in return. Even when we often give to charities, yes, ninety nine percent might be philanthropic, but the other one percent is. I can tell my friend I did it and feel good about myself. Or, you know, it's like that Friends episode where they sort of try and prove that you can do a selfless good deed <laughs> yeah. and you yes. just can't. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's impossible. Um, I think the, the, the question is if, you know, by BP sticking on them, sponsoring the big screen, does that make us go, okay, we like BP because they're sponsoring the opera? Or, as in your case, does it make people go, well, actually, that means I need to kind of look a bit more as to who they are and what and what they're doing because the whole point of BP doing this is to try and give themselves a, a better public profile a better public impression yes yeah uh, do you know what? I don't know it's 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 a tricky one isn't it i mean i guess what i feel is that the arts doesn't shouldn't be immune from this kind of stuff happening in the sense that whenever you create a piece of art and you put it out there if someone chooses to kind of use that as an opportunity to do then i think in a way that that's that is what it is i mean you it's it's not meant to be in closed walls it's not meant to be in you know in a bubble yeah exactly if it's out there it's out there and and maybe the debate is just a healthy one and it maybe there's no right and there's no wrong it's just that it's a thing that just needs to, it's a continuing thing that will always happen that people will use and if it's not this it'll be something else and you can't kind of stop that from happening um so yeah, i'm sort of not really answering your question because <laughs> it's it's too it's it's very hard but um yeah i mean that was sort of my response to it. it it was sort of not coming down on one side or the other but kind of going it's interesting that this is happening and we shouldn't necessarily stop it from happening i mean i suppose the the tipping point lorna may be where these sort of protests and discussions get to a point where it starts to reflect much more badly on the royal opera as it does on bp yeah, I think so. Um, I, I wrote down a few things about this, um, uh, this idea that BP are doing it to, as you say, raise their public profile. That's obviously uh, a consideration. But from the Royal Opera House's point of view, um, opera is expensive. Um, opera has been relying on sponsorship and donations, you know, since year dot. And it's big money they need. It's not, uh, you know, yes, there's the philanthropic element, there's the kind of single donors uh, and those kind of things. But but 
it, it needs to find this sponsorship money from somewhere in order to exist. Um, I wrote down <laughs> to kind of, is there such a thing as morally clean big money? You know, if you're going to be searching for this big money, um, there will always be something in it um just because that's the way a capitalist society works it's 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 big money it's come from somewhere not everyone's going to be happy with it um i think as as matt said it's actually more about having the discussion um the protesters i think put on their own opera so there's also some art being created so we can all get on board with that that, you know and and so there's a lot of that happening um i wrote down um Sponsors like BP getting involved in order to improve their image. I wrote down how much different is that from the historical opera audiences. People went to opera to be seen to be doing a thing. So in some ways, BP are maybe just a bit late to that party. Maybe opera's moved on. Maybe we will find a way to fund and keep creating opera without needing this kind of injection of big money from big corporations. But, you know, the matter of fact way of looking at it is opera's expensive. People want opera. The money's got to come from somewhere yeah and i know i said this last time but with my kind of background in in fundraising you know we know that the the public subsidy is getting less and less and without wanting to be too um morally blind to all of this we have to find some way that we're going to fill that gap if we want to create the art that that we want to create and and as you said lorna as well you know yes it's easy when bp plus their name over something to kind of complain but at what stage do we go to do we do we say someone who is very high up in bp who wants to be a, a private donor of a company do we start saying well no we don't want we don't want your money thank you i mean how far down these sorts of lines do you go i say it's very easy to kind of kick up a fuss when there's a very big kind of corporate hugely and i think there's a there's a big spectrum of um i i I have a huge amount of respect for people that protest in this kind of way um it's not i don't think it's something i can personally get involved Involved in, although for the last couple of years I've been trying to work out, you know, where I sit on the kind of activism spectrum. But uh, that I'm kind of somewhere a little bit further along the spectrum from them. But I think uh, I have huge respect for what they do. I love the fact that they are inspiring people to research these issues, have the conversations. You know, these issues are not binary. Let's just keep talking about them. Um, but I, I wrote down that one of the signs said, "No theatre on a dead planet," and I think that's probably the takeaway for me. Yes, absolutely. There is also no theatre without something to fund it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, maybe this is being a little bit pedantic, but let's not forget that most money from arts organisations comes from the Arts Council, which is a mixture of the government, and a lot of people don't like the government, and lottery funding. Um, so if you don't like gambling, yeah, a lot of money that goes to the arts you should, you should not be um, in favour yeah. of. So... As we say, it's so difficult to. Where is that moral compass? Where do we where do we put it? I think it's for individuals to decide. As you said earlier, with uh, with Mark withdrawing um, and and kind of being called out on that by one of his colleagues, I'm not sure that's that helpful. I think it's a personal compass issue. I think everyone needs to be able to take their own stance on it and be respected for that stance. I think we'll, we'll just close this by mentioning that the BP recently have also announced a new headline sponsorship of a gallery in Aberdeen. So as we said before, whilst people might be protesting it's not stopping either them wanting to sponsor new organizations or organizations wanting to take on that sponsorship and i'll said it before i'll say it again we will keep coming back to this issue mm-hmm. i think we will <laughs> as funding gets ever harder to find and we have to find it in new places um as you said it's going to be very hard to find those sources that we will uh, everyone can kind of morally agree upon So now on to our monthly summary of what you can see on TV and film uh, over the next month. 
Uh, now on television, of course, you can catch up on all of the Cardiff Singer of the World Heats. If you haven't quite got time to watch all of that, then do go back and listen to our podcasts where we provide handy summaries of every heat and the final. Uh, there's also uh, a programme I uh, caught a couple of weeks ago uh, by Lucy Worsley, Queen Victoria, my musical Britain, um, featuring some of Queen Victoria's favourite operas and composers. I had no idea that she was such a big opera fan. In the programme, there's a lot of... Um, Queen Victoria's writing and letters um, that, are, that are read out, and she writes very passionately and actually very knowledgeably about opera, um, something that I absolutely didn't realise. Um, so it's a fascinating programme. Uh, there are some great performances in there as well, uh, particularly Jennifer France gives a particularly uh, fantastic performance oh, as part of that, that programme. Uh, so do catch up with that on the BBC iPlayer. In cinema over the next month, we've got offerings from Glyndebourne and English National Opera. Uh, Glyndebourne's new production of Saint-Jean will be on the 30th of June. Their Barber of Seville, uh, filmed a couple of years ago, will be the 14th of July, and Ian O's Mikado will be available in cinemas on the 2nd of July. Uh, also is the launch, we mentioned this uh, last month, of the Pavarotti documentary, directed by Ron Howard. On the big screens across the UK, the Royal Opera House starts their opera summer season. Carmen on the 2nd of July, Figaro on the 9th of July. If you're listening in Leeds, uh, Millennium Square here will be hosting the screenings. Um, I don't think they've had them for a couple of years, but we'll be back up and running. We will be there, so do come and join us for those. Will there be more protests? We shall see. And finally, the sad news this month that the renowned opera and film director Franco Zeffirelli has died. Uh, he had a long relationship with the Royal Opera House, including famous productions of Tosca with Callas and Gobi and Lucia de Lammermoor with Dame Joan Sutherland. Um, I think we mentioned it on the Cardiff Singapore. You, you can't think of Lucia without Sutherland or Sutherland without Lucia. And it was Zeffirelli um, who, who directed the that really famous production at the Royal Opera House where she really made her name there. Um, he had some big hits, long-running hits at the Metropolitan Opera, um, as well as a number of filmed operas, including Traviata and Otello. See, I watched uh, Traviata, which she directed. I think it was in 1983. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's incredibly beautiful. Um, I mean, it's, it's always very funny that when opera's being put into that kind of, uh, you know, rather than a stage production being filmed, but an actual kind of opera film as it were um they're kind of very curious things because you sort of don't quite know where you are you're, you're not quite you sort of not quite the audience in in the way that you expect to be you know you sort of um see things in very different kind of ways but um yeah i mean incredibly beautiful and incredibly sort of detailed world that he created um in that so yeah i mean obviously you know very sad but you know left behind a whole load of work so we can yeah. all watch that and i think if there's one thing we associate with his his opera productions it is that kind of uh lavishness you know oh, he, he had the big stage at the yes. opera house and the, and the met and he he used really used them. it <laughs> yes I, I kind of think of sort of like a, a david mcvicker sort of uh-huh. yes. kind of modern kind of compare you know really lovely lush sort of yes we've stages. sort of got into our sort of minimalism now haven't we where we kind of strip everything back but even that beginning of traviata there's sort of this amazing sort of old house with just hundreds of chandeliers you know <laughs> and it's just so detailed and beautiful you know so yeah, we don't quite see that so much anymore. Oh, so. from a slightly different age, maybe. Yes, I mean. yes, exactly. Mm. Yes, yeah. yes. And now moving on to our hidden gem. Every month we pick an opera which isn't very rarely heard, but we think deserves a closer listen. And this month, in honour of the winner of Cardiff Singer of the World, Andre Kimak, I've chosen Aleko by Rachmaninoff. Uh, Andre performed the Cavatina as part of the final of this year's competition. 
Uh, now, it's one of the many opera adaptations of Pushkin, this time a Pushkin poem. Uh, it's the story of a young man, Aleko, and his love for a gypsy woman, Zemfira. Um, this, however, being kind of the time of Arismo, it does not have a happy ending. <laughs> it's, it's sometimes paired, it's a one-act opera, sometimes paired with other kind of Arismo operas of the period, um, often with, with Pagliacci instead of um, Cav. And it has that same kind of brooding menace of those those operas, perhaps without hitting some of those kind of gut-wrenching heights of the, the famous Italian uh, duo. But it's a, it's a wonderful piece. Um, if you saw Andre's performance, you know, you'll know that Caventina is a, is a really, really beautiful song at the heart of the opera. Another piece of this kind of period to kind of have a notable mention as well, which is, um, I don't think has been done in absolute decades, is uh, Margot La Rouge by Delius. Another of these kind of short Verismo operas, which seem to kind of really flourish in sort of a 20-year sort of sort of period. Um, fascinating to see Delius try his hand at something like that. And I think that's a piece where it's you listen more for the uh, interest of Delius turning his hand rather than necessarily the success <laughs> of Delius turning his, his, his hand to it. But there's some really interesting kind of gems in there. Aleko definitely is, is definitely one of the more successful ones. Um, and so here is uh, the, the Cavatina, which I say was performed by Andre in the Cardiff Singer final. And finally, as we always do, we're going to finish with our opera quiz. Now, taking the lead from last month, which I think people seem to, to quite enjoy, we're going to do something a little bit different. Uh, last month, it was the most performed operas in the world. This month, I'm going to turn my attention. I love this moment. <laughs> we're both like, nervously looking I look, at you. I look at the guests <laughs> to see the looks on their faces. I'm turning my attention to the Classic FM Hall oh, of Fame. Interesting. Oh, interesting. Every year... Uh, listeners vote for their favourite pieces of classical music. There are within the top three hundred. There are thirty-three operas. Oh, I thought you were just going to go away from opera. Then I was like, lock us ending. Let's no, go. Unfo- no. Unfortunately, not. <laughs> um, thirty-three operas uh, in that list. I'd like you to take it in turns to name one of the operas in Classic FM's listeners' favourite uh, pieces of music. Now I will let you have one incorrect answer. Oh. I'll give you two clues. One is that, yes, a lot of the favourites are in there. The other clue is, for some of them, you've got to think about where they're really, really popular songs in maybe slightly more obscure operas. So there are 33 in total. I'm going to start, please, Matthew, with you. Could you name me one of the 33 operas in the Classic FM Hall of Fame? Carmen. Yes. I'm going to go Pearl Fishers because of what you said about the popular song. Pearl Fishers is the fourth most popular opera with Classic FM <gasps> listeners. Uh, Traviata. I've I, think they like, well, I think they like Traviata because they? they played the overture oh, that, of it well, a lot. Yes, okay. Traviata is in there. Oh. Bohem? Bohem is in there. Suddenly you've forgotten all of the operas yes, you've well, ever known. I'm trying to think of the ones where it's absolutely... There'll be no Britain on there, I'm sure. Surely. I, d- I doubt it. I'm trying to read every little I know. expression in his he's, face. He's it's very difficult. Really very helping. difficult to read. Um... 
let's say Figaro. Figaro. I was just writing Figaro down. Figaro's there. Um, I feel like Kazi is probably there as well because of the trio. Kazi's there. Here we go. Onto a theme. Don Giovanni. Yes. Oh, they do. They do like the the cavatina, don't they? they do. Um. Ooh. Oh no. My mind's gone blank. Oh, uh, Tosca. I mean, surely they yep. love Visidante. Oh, surely they. Yeah. Pause. Got a long list to look up and down. Do you? Okay. Yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um. Okay. I'm not. I, I, I want to get. I don't want to lose. You see. So I, I'm, I'm thinking of offers, <laughs> but I'm discarding them because I, I don't think they're good enough. Uh, Wait till you get more particular. desperate. A couple of answers no, I down know, there. I know, I know. No, I think I'm there right now. Um, oh, I don't know. Aida. I think that's not... A, that might not... Yep. Oh, that's okay. Oh, really? <laughs> look at the, the look of relief on your face. Okay. That's great. Go In which case, there. I'm going to go Turandot. I mean, Turandot had to be in there. Had to be in there, surely. But, oh, oh gosh, because of Ness and Dorma. In my head, I'm oh. thinking, but all of those choruses are quite kind of... New. No, Ness and Dorma. <laughs> Fine. Surprisingly far down the list, though, actually. Oh, well, I said no Britain, but I might just give it a go. I'm going to say... Oh, going Britain. Uh, Peter Grimes. Foolish choice. There's no Britain <gasps> in this no! list. No! Okay, so that's his one wrong answer that he's allowed. Okay. So I think I need to go back into safe territory, don't I? So we've had, we've had Carmen... Um, the other French stuff. Oh, they like a bit. Oh, I don't know about Offenbach. That's that's probably a bit. What about other Verdi or Puccini. Um, I'm not going to give you too long. Oh, uh, Lacme. Lacme certainly. Yes, flower duet for the win. Have we done the magic flute? Oh. Magic flute is the top operatic pick. Oh, yes. So we've had one and we've had four. We're we missing two and three. No, you're missing three and four. What was two? Figaro. I'm trying to think of things that like Raymond Gubbe and Alan Kent do. That's kind of. I'm going to have to hurry you. Oh, no, don't hurry me. No, my mind's gone blank. No. Matthew? The Bartered Bride. It's <gasps> very sweet, isn't it? Good. Easy listening. Oh, I've got one. That would that would that counted oh, as my that counted as my wrong answer it's before. Not afraid that Lana has won. <laughs> oh, this month's competition. Oh, that's exciting. I was about to say Roselka. Is Roselka on Roselka there? Roselka is on yeah, there. Yeah, song to the moon. Uh, yeah. Congratulations. Just to pick a few of those in there. Um, Merry Widow. Uh, yeah, some really odd ones. Vanessa by Samuel Barber. Oh, I think I think she's got kind of quite a standout, but classic FM audiences. Yeah. I don't know. But, uh, things like the Thieving Magpie, the Overture. Uh, oh my gosh, we didn't even touch GNS. Uh, no, there's no GNS oh, in, in the whole thing. Oh. I don't think. Yes, uh, Tristan and Isolde. Oh, of course. Really oh, bizarre one. Die Tote Stadt. Um, oh. Corn Gold was in there. I absolutely no idea why. Cersei, Fidelio, Jenny Skiki, Madam Butterfly. Oh, uh, Butterfly. Nabucco. Oh, we're awful people. William out. Tell again, another one because of the overture. Yes. yes Samson Delilah, Prince Igor. And probably the other one that you maybe should have got is De Valkyra. Right, the Valkyries. Yes, and I was also mm. just thinking there's a Rossini opera with a really famous uh, overture. No, well, we had we had William Tell and we had the Thieving Magpie. No. Two very famous. Um, uh, opera number three was Caballero Rusticana. Was it? Because oh, of these to him. So there we go. There we go. There we go. Well, congratulations, Lorna. Thanks very much. Well two for two. Indeed. Do I get commiserations to me? Or uh, you can have commiserations. <laughs> Although <laughs> I think going for the Britain was a bizarre choice, but never mind. It was bold, though, and it I was, respected it him was for ballsy. that. He knew he um, had a life. It's one thing we celebrate here on podcast. <laughs> it's ballsy opera it's choices. It's gutsy people. Nice. <laughs> Thank you very much, Lorna, for joining us. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to be back. Thank you, Matthew. It's been lovely to have you. Thank you very much. We'll have you back again. Thank you to everyone here at Chapel FM, as always. We'll be back next month. I'll be talking to English Touring Opera and a special touring-themed episode. And we'll also have a special one-off episode covering this year's Operalia competition from Prague. So thank you for listening. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe, and we will see you next month.